Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half-hour audio biography featuring unique personalities whose lives and ideas are on the cutting edge. Alan Wolper is an award-winning journalist and a professor at Rutgers University, Newark. And now, here's Conversations with Alan Wolper. Victoria Pratt is the chief judge of Newark's Municipal Court. She's won an international following for her campaign to reform criminal courts. A top New York City judicial official has called her a warrior for procedural justice. Judge Pratt presides over a nationally praised cutting-edge judicial program called Community Solutions. It offers defendants in minor criminal cases a chance to avoid jail by following specific rules of behavior. She's also the first judge of Dominican ancestry to be appointed to the Newark Municipal Court bench. Judge Pratt, why the law? I wanted to change the world. I wanted to change the world. Um, I realized that I wasn't going to be good enough to be an Alvin Ailey dancer, so I had to focus on uh, (laughs) more earnest goals. I decided that I could change the world, and then I got a little older and became a little disillusioned by it. And then I got wiser and realized that we all can shift the world and shift people and that we actually have an obligation to do it from where we stand. So I went to law school. Uh, Rutgers Law School. Rutgers Law School, the great electric law school, as it's called in Newark, and has this great history. And I was a, and I am a proud member of the minority student program there. And I had an opportunity while I was in law school to really do a lot of community work. Um, again, the place of my birth, which was Newark, and also the city I like to say helped raise me, uh, being the daughter of a Dominican beautician who came to this country for a better life for her unborn children and also the daughter of an African-American garbage man who spent his summers in the segregated South even though he was born in Harlem. I spent a lot of time defending my parents. My parents both had eighth grade educations. My mother subsequently got a high school diploma. Why were you defending them? Because the world doesn't treat people who one, have very strong accents, speak very little English, or have very little education kindly. When you are the English-speaking child of an immigrant first generation, you find yourself going to governmental offices, filling out paperwork, not just for your parents, but for their friends as well. But there was And a, you were doing this when you were how old? Nine, ten. I remember going to the DMV with my uncle and arguing with the woman on the other side of the window about his driver's license and not really even understanding what some of the concepts were. But because he couldn't communicate effectively, it was my responsibility to make sure that what he wanted, he left with at that time. So even back then, you were sort of a judge? Even back then. (laughs) Even back then. Or a legal facilitator. Absolutely. And it's really interesting how you kind of grow into the position and just naturally transition into it. But you just you didn't just join. You just didn't suddenly decide, I want to be a lawyer. There was a point when you evolved into wanting to be a lawyer. I evolved into it. I was at Rutgers undergrad as well in New Brunswick. And I, was, I remember taking a class to become a tutor for um, a literacy program they had. The American Friends, I believe it was, in Newark. And I, the tutoring sessions were actually at the law school. And it was something about being in this environment. It was when the law school was on 15 Washington Street. In Newark. In Newark. And there was something that really just drew me there. And I got over feeling 
uncomfortable about becoming a lawyer and decided I went back to school and declared my major and started to apply to law schools at that time. I didn't get in the first time I applied. Imagine that. They wouldn't accept me. And I spent my... You didn't get mad or anything. Of course I did. You did? Of course. I stalked the dean for about probably a week. What did you tell him? Why? Have you not seen my application? (laughs) And she said, "Uh, we actually like to enroll students who've had some life experience. So I spent my first year out of college as a teacher, an ESL instructor at La Casa de Don Pedro, which is actually down on Broad Street, Broadway. English as a second language. English as a second language. And I taught women who were in the welfare-to-work program. And the best thing about it was that I'm fluent in Spanish, but I didn't speak any Spanish in class. So I would force my students to speak English and teach them to get, so that they would become accustomed to hearing the language. So I ended up getting into law school the spring after that and let them know at that point that I spoke English. It's actually kind of um, nice now to see some of my students engaged in community activities, actually community leaders. Any of them come before work. you in court? Or? One has. Um, it was a conflict. I sent her to another courtroom, but it was a uh, very— As a defendant? As a defendant. What was he or she charged with? Uh, addiction. She Well, she's addicted, but it was a prostitution charge. It was very disheartening to see. You can't save them all? Can't save them all, but I go for as many as I can get. <laughs> I'm really interested in uh, the fact that you were down in Camden, New Jersey, which had a very, very rough time Schools in the school system anyway. And yes. what, you were pretty controversial down there. Yeah, I ended up in Camden via the governor's office. I went to... That was Governor McGreevy. Governor McGreevy and then Governor Cody. I worked for Governor McGreevy for about four months before he resigned. And then Governor Cody became the governor. And I was an attorney in the authorities unit there where I was monitoring the government's independent authorities. And one of the authorities that I had at that time, it wasn't an actual authority, but McGreevy had given some money to Camden for redevelopment. And as a part of that, he was able to get control over the Camden City School District's minutes. So I worked with the team at the Board of Education, at the State Board, to actually review their minutes to kind of try to get them on track and subsequently went down there to serve as the compliance officer for the Camden City School District. I'm probably sorry to see you now after what you've done down there. Well, it was very, uh, it was hard work. I um, uncovered a lot of wrongdoing. Corruption is what we call it in We English. call it corruption now. <laughs> English is the first language. <laughs> I did. It was very disheartening to see that um, there were children who had um, field trip money that was stolen. Their parents wouldn't send them on field trips because there was a principal who was charging them for field trips, but the school district had paid for the school for the school field trips, and the students would subsequently be charged. There was cheating on school exams by um, principals. The, the The craziest thing about it was that the two schools that were in question, when you looked at the district's numbers, those children at third and fourth graders had scored in the highest percentile. One had like 100% proficiency, another school district. Another school had 98% proficiency in terms of how high they were scoring in these two schools in this district. When they when we tested the third graders who then became fourth graders the next year, those scores went down to 23%, 48%. They could barely read and write, or they were not they were not at all proficient in any of the subjects. And these students and, and these 
teachers were almost allowed to have these fiefdoms where there was theft. They were buying televisions, and the televisions would disappear. Uh, into their homes, probably, or else their, they sold Subsequently, them. we found out that that's exactly where they went. They would order, I remember they ordered flowers for centerpieces for the schools, and we were subsequently told by the people at the school that there were never any flowers in the school, but there were rumors that uh, the principal's children had been married and that some of that money had been used for you know, private weddings. It was, it was very disheartening to see how the money had been siphoned from the children who, in fact, needed it. And even with the um, cheating on the scores, what happened was that the kids didn't get the federal supplemental federal funding that they were entitled to. Well, the principal found out about it. He wound up in prison, didn't he? Yes, he sure did. He sure did. And a lot of teachers um, who participated lost their tenure, which is almost unheard of. Unheard of. But as time went on, life began to change for you. And at some point, you became a judge. I became a judge. A judge. Did you ever think that would ever happen? I didn't. But I have this very special person in my family called Uncle Claude. Okay. He is my dear uncle. And he began to call me maybe four years before I became a judge. And we would talk. And every couple of months I'd get a call and it was very specifically, you know what, you need to think about Does he have a last a name, this guy? Claude Trahan, yes. Uncle Claude Trahan. <laughs> and a former exact at Con Edison. And very involved in New York politics. And I'm the country niece who lives in New Jersey. <laughs> we're going we're to finish that in a second. I want to tell everybody that you're listening to Conversations with Alan Walper on WBGO 88.3 and WBGO.org. And our guest, if you haven't figured it out by now, is the chief judge of Newark Criminal Court, New Jersey, Victoria F. Pratt. Now, let's continue the story. <laughs> so I would get these random calls from my uncle saying, you really need to think about becoming a judge. And I would think, why would you bother me with this? You know, I'm very... Pain in the neck. Yeah, kind of was. (laughs) And I'd get another call, and out of the blue, he's like, have you thought about becoming a judge? You could even move to New York. You're licensed in New York, and we could run you. And I'm like, I'm not interested in doing this. I'm very content, you know, having my uh, very vast legal experience. And I end up coming back to Newark. Um, Hadn't been there since I worked as an ESL instructor you were, in, you were in New York City by then. Well, I, I spent a short time, probably a year in New York. I'd left New York. I went down to Trenton to work for the governor's office. I went to Camden as well. And then from Camden, um, I came back to Newark to work for the municipal council as the council to the office of the president, who at the time, well, still is, is was Mildred Crump. My goodness, you're a real commuter. <laughs> I really was. I really was. So finally, finally, something had to happen that made this all happen. Yes. After working for the council, I started to think, wow, what a great job. What what we know is that the municipal court touches more lives than any other court in the state. Most people will only engage the court in any state at the municipal level, whether it's traffic, whether it's quality of life, whether it's uh, petty or disorderly persons' offenses at the criminal level level. But usually it's the municipal court is the face of the court. And Newark Municipal Court is is special because our caseload, we handle over 500,000 cases annually. Before you get to that, yes. how did you become a judge? Who is responsible for that? Why did they want you? I was appointed by then Mayor, now Senator Cory Booker. 
And I told him I wanted to be a ma- I wanted to be a judge. Did he call you up, or you just went to see him? I went to see him, and I told him I wanted to be a judge. What did he say? He asked me if I wanted to work for him, and I told him that at that time I really wanted to just go be a judge. And I just be a judge. Just be a know. judge. <laughs> a little a, a judge in criminal court or a judge. Did you have any idea what you wanted to do? No, I just knew that I wanted to make a change in our municipal court. After you told him. Forget about it, Mayor Booker. I want to be. I want to be a judge. Just you know. What, what I happened? told him that I'd he'd get a bigger bang for his buck if he put me over at his courthouse. And after, that was in two thousand nine. That was in two thousand nine, and I began my career in traffic court. He just it just happened like that. He just appointed you. It must have been a little bit of rummaging around your background and stuff like that. That he did, but I'd already worked with the administration as the. Um, since I'd been working in the legislative branch for three years. So he was aware of my work. He knew me as well. And suddenly you were of Dominican ancestry. I was. You are. You still are. I still am. Okay. <laughs> and as well as speaking Spanish. But I. But then came a moment I was looking at the uh, at a YouTube of the of your, if you're swearing in with just lots. Of, it looked like Yankee Stadium in the bleachers. It was packed. Everyone who knew me from the person who made me walk at seven months was there. It was the most beautiful experience I've ever had in my life. And your uncle was there, right? And my uncle was there, of course, right in the front. But to see so many people, I mean, even the judges who had mentored me as a young attorney, they were there. Harold Foley, Love Sr., swore me in. And it was just an amazing experience to see so many people, even from the community. I had one of the community um, activists say to me, oh, can I come to your... (laughs) Can I come to your swearing in? You know the streets love you. And I thought, well, what a compliment that what she was saying was that my connection to the community was so strong that she was so proud that someone who at least was connected to the community in a way that was respectful was now being elevated to be a judge. And your sanitation father? He passed that year. Before you became a judge? Before, that was January. I used, actually, that was some of the motivation as well. Why? What did he have to do with that? Because I thought of all the sacrifices that my parents had made. And to think that um, when I looked at myself, I was like, you know, I was probably living up to 5% of my potential. And I live in the land of milk and honey. I I think you said at one point in your life that you uh, didn't drink deeply from the from a, a yes. well, and that other people had been doing a lot of the digging for you. Yes. Is that what you meant? Yes, I drink deeply from a well that I did not dig. Yeah. And and that was your father's well? My father's well, my mother's well, the people who protested in after the riots in Newark in the 60s, forcing Rutgers to begin to look at students of color and letting them into the schools. They didn't know me. They didn't know me at all, and I've benefited from those things. So the only way you can pay something back is through gratitude. I I was at a funeral once, and a minister said, a priest actually said, every time you inhale, you're asking the creator for another moment, and every time you exhale, the creator's saying it's granted. And so I kind of live my life in this place of gratitude, but understanding that you have to give it back in some way or, or another. And you gave it back pretty big time. Now you're a chief judge. It now just, I'm a just chief didn't judge. happen overnight. Now I'm a chief judge. I've been um, practicing for over four years. November was five years, and I became the chief in September. I was in your courtroom, as we both know, but the 
audience doesn't know watching my students uh, watching you run a court like it was some kind of an off-Broadway theater with people <laughs> people applauding people reading things and uh, and then you have this this community I guess you, what would you call it it's what? North Community Solutions it's a community court project that is submerged within our criminal arraignment court so I'm also the arraignment court judge for the city so if individuals are arrested let's say they were arrested today they'll see me tomorrow and from that group, we either send them to other courts or we put them in the program and I monitor them. People are coming before you with very, very low-profile criminal cases, I would think. They're, they're um, kids from uh, – you're in Newark and kids from Montclair who are coming to Newark coming to Newark because they want to drink a lot. And you have to deal with all of them and you have all kinds of ideas on how to handle them. Give me an example of how you handle a kid who's – 18 years old and 19, he's coming down, he's had too much to drink, he's from a fraternity party, and there he is right in front of you, and he's scared to death. Well, our program deals with low-level offenders, and because the municipal court deals with 18-year-olds old and older, um, it can be an array of cases that come before municipal court cases. We do have a blueprint, but um, that case you're talking about in particular may be an underage drinking case or any other thing that falls under it could be a failure to pay disorderly person's offense and that person the prosecutor would uh, review their case and make a recommendation for the Newark Community Solutions Program and at that time they'd be required to do social services which would include meeting with the counselors group sessions or community service which is then monitored by the courts they'd come back and see me every couple of weeks but depending on the young person before me I might even require them to write an essay. Why don't I read for one of them? <laughs> we, were, we were setting this up here. My bad choices have already affected me presently, but can keep on affecting me in my near and distant future if I do not change my ways. I could easily end up like my mother, who actually was an alcoholic and died from a liver failure the past year. You remember that case very well, I'm sure. Yes. Um, clearly a young person who needed to talk about and mourn the experience of having lost their mother and had been and had turned to um, drinking in a way that was going to affect them negatively. And somehow doing community service, being able to give back, that particular person may have gone to a soup kitchen where they were serving food and cleaning, and to actually be able to see their lives and see the opportunities that they were about to blow. And looking into a mirror, saying that that could be me. That could be me. And to have the community, because the wonderful thing is that the community partner is also talking to the young person who goes down. They're like, what are you getting in trouble about when you have all these opportunities to have a life for yourself? What happened to him? Uh, finished. But finished. I, finished. But I think this kid had an aha moment. And I think it was the severity of like, wow, I could actually go to jail like the next step could be jail for me and being held accountable being held accountable for their actions which is what's important particularly in the justice system we want people we want to have proportionality in the consequences but there are consequences they have to know that they have to know that that's life that's life and I think that um, we do a disservice when we don't teach particularly our young people that 
that there are consequences. That there are consequences. Um, you talk about the theater and the clapping, which um, shocks most people. I'm going to get to the clapping okay. in a second. But first, <laughs> I want to remind everybody that tuned in to Conversations with Alan Wolper on WBGO-FM 88.3 and WBGO.org. No nationally as America's jazz source. Our guest is Victoria F. Pratt, Chief Judge of Municipal Court in Newark, New Jersey. And she's going to tell you about what happens when the entire courtroom has decided <laughs> that you've reached one of these young defendants. What do you guys do? Well, it, it could be, you know, <laughs> we clap. And we do a could, clap. Let me say just like that. Oh, yes. I mean, depending on and, – and it's not just the young defendants. It's also the older defendants. I mean, we have older defendants who sometimes say – I want to be in this program just so that I can be one of these jokers they clap for. And when they say that, the idea that praise is so absent from their lives is what most gets me. Some of them will say, I want to accomplish something, Judge. For the first time in my life, I want to accomplish something. So along the lines of therapeutic, um, one of the strategies used in therapeutic courts, praise from the judge, but clapping. But it's great to see po- people clapping for themselves. What it's- got me was seeing two guys who were about six feet, four inches tall and, and as wide as a defensive tackle for one of the pro teams applauding along with you. Applauding along with me. And then shaking people's hands as they walk off because they're done. But things are not always as um, as happy, happy, happy endings like that. I saw some people who couldn't speak English and concerned about the fact that they're, that the head of the family was going to be sent out of the country because of uh, if they were convicted of a misdemeanor. I don't don't think the audience will understand that. Will you explain it? Well, some of the um, petty disorderly persons um, have immigration consequences. And so even though it's a petty disorderly persons, if you're not a citizen of the United States, you face possible deportation if there's a guilty conviction. You face... um, being prevented from being readmitted to the country if you leave voluntarily. You can be a resident and potentially you'll have those consequences and even becoming a naturalized American citizen are some of the consequences. I noticed that in one case there was uh, four or five women who were really concerned and were crying because they realized that one of their husbands, or I think in one case it was a, uh, it was a father, worrying that he was going to be thrown out. And I have a suspicion that humanity enters into this and maybe the the charges may be reduced a little bit so we could stay in the country? Well, the cases belong to the prosecutor. Um, in those cases, we have a domestic violence court, if that was the particular case, I think, on that day, and it would have been sent to the domestic violence court. Um, but the prosecutor has the authority to, in fact, downgrade a case or not. But those are some of the concerns. Those are the concerns that come that we see in the court. I mean, most of the social ills that you see in society find their way into the courtroom. So it's more than just the charge that's before you. It's the lives that are being affected by cases. And I think that that was probably the reason that you were invited to London to tell the world out there what it's all about. You had you were, you received some, uh, some praise from a number of uh, publications out there. So tell us about that. I went to London to tell judges that they could revolutionize the communities that they serve. And um, they bought it. They bought <laughs> they, it. They bought it. They wanted to hear it. They wanted to see what we're doing in the United States. Uh, they had gathered a group of 
judges, magistrates, lawyers, social workers, and researchers to share ideas, to share evidence, to share whatever they needed to share ideas about the future and innovation. Everybody was centered on how do we make our community safer. How about how do you talk to defendants as well? How do you talk to defendants as well? That was a... That was um, what judicial courtesy is what we did, um, also known as procedural justice, procedural fairness. Uh, this, is the, this is a part of the access to justice movement where we're ensuring that people have access to the justice system, that they understand what's going on and under procedural justice to ensure legitimacy as well as increasing public trust in the system. You have to have neutrality. People have to perceive the justice system as neutral. And the judge is neutral. As or the not judge ready to send them away or to, or, to get, or to release them. Or to release them, but also neutral in terms of the parties, especially when dealing with pro se defendants, defendants who are repre- pro se, pro se defendants. Um, people who are representing themselves, and also uh, that's a good segue into understanding the process, understanding, period, what's being said to them using plain English. One of the jokes is that you say to um, a defendant, oh, sir, are you proceeding pro se? He goes, no, judge, the prosecutor's the pro. I'm the amateur. But um, that they understand the process and the consequences as well, that they have a voice, let them know that they're going to have an opportunity to speak, and in some instances, why you're not letting them speak. And this is, that's why Fern Fisher, the deputy chief administrative judge for the New York City Courts, said that Judge Pratt was a warrior for procedural justice. Procedural. After it was all over, do you think that uh, you've accomplished anything? I think so. I think that this conference, which was called Better Courts, has given judges, given practitioners permission to do this, given them permission to really engage defendants differently, to actually look at their system. Um, They talked about fixing their system or reforming their system from the inside out. Um, Also, I visited a number of their courts, and we talked about access to justice, how people are perceived when they're standing behind a glass when the defendants are actually behind a glass and in a booth, it already looks like they are in jail, and how um, those cases are resolved when the perception is that the person is already encased. Um, also, how it's okay to engage defendants. It's okay to talk to them. It's okay to say, good morning, sir, good morning, ma'am. I remember speaking to someone about that, and they said to me, you actually call the defendants sir and ma'am? As if they were people. And I said, well, if I'm discourteous to someone, it doesn't say anything about them. It says something about me. But being able to having the freedom to do that and including that as a part of your repertoire. But I noticed when I came to your courtroom, I saw some people coming in chains. And that, that is a, creates a perception that perhaps they're already guilty before they've been adjudicated. But they have been adjudicated. Why, why do people... Um, why do we why do we behave this way? Sometimes we we go overboard either one way or the other. Either they're they're let out on bail, maybe people say they shouldn't, or they're in or they're in handcuffs when we're concerned about it. What's the what's the answer to that? Is well, there a, is there a, a fair way to deal with that? Well, the police department is responsible for folks while they're in custody, and and the issue is whether there's a perception of whether they are safe if defendants are not in handcuffs, and so that's been. I guess the issue that's been going back and forth, some of the defendants have been picked up on new cases. Some of them have warrants. But how one brings them in and 
manages the safety of the courtroom is really, I guess, more of a question for the police department. But how do you manage that in? One last question that I can't resist. You once told an interviewer that every challenge you've had, every victory that you've had has prepared you for the next step. I've just noticed that you've been certified to argue United States Supreme Court. (laughs) I don't think you're going to be there tomorrow, but I wondered if you thought about that. I hadn't thought about that. But you Um, will now. Now that you've made Now that I've mentioned you a a possible nominee for the United States (laughs) Supreme Court. Thank you, Alan. (laughs) What do you think? Well, I hadn't thought about that. The idea of that? You know, I thought I went down. That was a special story. I went down with my mother, and I went down with a Hispanic Bar Association. And the person who actually sponsored us said our names in a Spanish accent. And the idea that I was in the U.S. Supreme Court having my name said in a room as it reverberated against the walls was actually bigger than what I thought it was, that I would have arrived at a level that my mother could sit in in the U.S. Supreme Court and see her daughter sworn in. I may have done it more for her than I did it for myself, but boy, was it awesome. Victoria Pratt, Chief Judge of Criminal Court in Newark, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I suspect we'll be hearing a lot more of you in the years to come. Maybe a federal bench, what do you think? Wow, you've given me two jobs so far. I'm doing everything I can. (laughs) Joanna Walpert is the senior producer of this program, and Doug Doyle is executive producer. Conrad Saguinetti is our engineer. And Gabriel Gorwitz is our web associate. If you would like to hear any of our other 85 audio biographies, just Google Conversations with Alan Warper, and you can have your choice of picking one of them out. Until we talk again, I'm Alan Warper. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production studio in New York's Flatiron District. And support for Conversations with Alan Wolper has been provided by the Blanche and Irving Laurie Foundation.